Good morning, everybody. Uh, glad to be here with you. Uh, if you're a guest and you don't know who I am, I'm, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and uh, I'll be sharing with you a little bit this morning. If you would, let's just, uh, would you just join me in prayer before we get started? Our Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for Jesus, uh, by whom we gather here. And uh, just pray this morning that you would have uh, your gospel made and the good news of Jesus Christ made very clear that we would hear it through everything that we do, through our singing, through our fellowshipping, through the message, through our time of response, through everything that we do this morning, that it would just be about Jesus, it'd be about the gospel, and that we would hear it. I pray that uh, right now you would use me to say what you would have said, uh, not, not my own words, but yours. And I pray for each one of us here that we would hear what you'd have each one of us hear so that our hearts are stirred and our affections for you as we know how deep and how wide the love of Jesus is for each one of us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when I was a kid, I really liked baseball. I really got into baseball when I was really young. And before I moved to Georgia, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where I'm from. Uh, and in Phoenix, at the time, when I was a kid, we didn't have a major league baseball team. As a matter of fact, we also didn't have a pro football team. Uh, so my love of the game didn't come from following a specific team or really getting into all the games and watching. I got into collecting baseball cards because that was the thing, right? And I got baseball cards, and I started collecting other memorabilia, posters, and whatnot. That's how I got into to baseball. And, and I learned a lot just through my collections, right? I learned about the players, I learned their stats, I learned about all the records that were out there, who broke what records, when they broke them. Uh, I, you know, just learned all kinds of stuff. And eventually I actually got to go to Cooperstown and go to the Hall of Fame, which was pretty cool. But that's how I got in love with baseball. I fell in love with the players. And one particular player that I really liked was Bo Jackson. Some of you might know who Bo Jackson is, others of you may not, because it's been a while. But if you remember, early in the 90s, maybe, there was an ad campaign with Bo Jackson. It was Bo Knows, right? Bo Knows Baseball, Bo Knows Football. No, that's cool. If you don't know who Bo Jackson is, he was a football player at Auburn University. Whatever, right? But he won a Heisman while he was there, and then he was like the first draft pick in the NFL, which he didn't go. Anyways, he went to the NFL eventually, and he played for the Los Angeles Raiders. I'm pretty sure it was the Los Angeles Raiders at the time. They move all the time, but whatever. So he played for the Los Angeles Raiders, but what set Bo Jackson apart was not that he was just an all-star professional football player, but he was also an all-star professional baseball player, and he played baseball for the Kansas City Royals. That's how I got into uh, Bo Jackson, was obviously through his baseball playing, and then that kind of was a little bit of an introduction for me to football. Anyways, I say all that because I was into that stuff, and he was a good player, and I liked him a lot. And when I moved to Georgia, I was 11 years old, and I didn't bring much with me, but I brought my baseball cards and my baseball stuff, right? And one of my first memories of moving here was I moved into this house with my mom and my sisters. I got in my room, and I had this poster of Bo Jackson. And I unrolled this poster. It was a really long poster. And I unrolled this poster, and it went the length of my bed. And I hung that poster up over my bed, and I just remember seeing it all the time. And basically on this poster, it was, baseball, uh, it was Bo Jackson, the baseball player, you know, knocking one out of the park, and then he's running down the first baseline. And as he's running down the baseline, he turns into Bo Jackson, the football player, right? So he kind of morphs across it. And written across the poster, it just said metamorphosis, 
So every time I hear the word metamorphosis, that's what I think of. I bring this up because as we look at Matthew's account of the transfiguration of Jesus, the word that Matthew uses in the Greek for transfiguration is the passive form of the Greek word metamorphosis. Now, you've probably heard that word. It's a Greek word that has kept its meaning in English, and most of us understand it in some form or fashion. Some of you might think of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, but every time I hear the word, I think of Bo Jackson turning in from a baseball player into a football player. Now, to be honest about this scene of the transfiguration that we're going to look at today, it's always seemed really bizarre to me. And when I, honestly, when I planned out this preaching schedule, I made a mental note not to preach this week because it was difficult and weird, and then I forgot, and somehow I'm up here preaching. But, however, as we've, as we've been approaching this passage, as we've been coming through the story of Matthew, I have gained a better understanding of what was going on with Jesus and the disciples, what was going on in that time, what was going on at the transfiguration of Jesus, what was going on at the metamorphosis of Jesus. It's kind of been wrapped, as we've gone through the story, it's been wrapped in some context. It's allowed me to understand what's happening here a little more clearly and how it's, a little more, how it's significant for us today. And for me, this is for me, I'm trying to help you get that picture, but for me, that poster of Bo Jackson, the baseball player, changing into Bo Jackson, the football player, is a really good picture of what's happening here. Because while he is on one thing, because while Bo Jackson is one thing on the left side and another thing on the right side, it's all Bo Jackson, right? And that's what set Bo Jackson apart, that he was both. He changed back and forth between baseball player and football player during the week. He'd go to two different games and play two different sports, but he was always Bo Jackson. He was always both, baseball player and football player. If you would, take a look with me today in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. You can turn there. It's also going to be on the screen. Matthew 17, 1 through 13, and it says this. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we actually have some available on that back table or out of guest services, so feel free to pick one up and take one home. Matthew 17, 1 through 13, and it says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and, did, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, before we move on, I just got to acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff happening here in this passage, and we're not, 
we're just not going to be able to get to all of it. There's a lot of really bizarre stuff happening here, but we don't have time to get into every bit of it. We're going to deal with some of it, but we can't get to all of it. But what we can do, I think, is try to get to the heart of what's going on here and how that matters and, and see how that matters in the gospel story and how it, uh, what it means for us today. Now, as we've been going through this series, uh, I think this is the fourth week in this particular series, and we've named it Revealing Christ, because in this group of passages, we've already seen the one scene where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And we also have this scene today at the Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured and, and revealed in his glory. And Matthew, through all these passages, seems to be giving us some implications of what Jesus' uh, Jesus's identity as the Christ really means, right? So as Jesus is identified as the Christ through these passages, I think I said this last week, as Jesus is identified as the Christ through these passages, there is no room to make him anybody's idea of what a Christ or what a Messiah would be. Instead, he can only be followed. He's the only way. And we've actually talked a good bit in the last few months about what Jesus' Jewish contemporaries seem to be expecting of a Christ, right? Uh, that, that they were kind of wanting a king or a Messiah or a Christ who would ride in on his horse and lead them to rise up against Rome and win for them their independence as a nation, win back uh, Israel, basically. And it doesn't seem that anybody was really wanting, uh, it, it just seems that, that all anybody was wanting was a king and a savior who would make Israel great. That's what everybody wanted. They wanted a king to bring about restoration of their national identity and the restoration to their promised land. That's probably partly why in that scene with Peter, when he confessed Jesus to be the Christ and then he couldn't understand why Jesus would say he would be killed. Because that makes no sense if you're expecting a savior who's going to be a great leader that leads an earthly campaign to restore independence as a nation. Because how do you do that from the grave? It's probably partly why, why Peter was in disbelief. But the reality that they were missing out on, and I think that Jesus is leading them to see and us to see, is that land is that the land and that the nation were always just signs that pointed backwards towards the garden and forward to a more complete restoration to what that looked like. I think we can relate today. I mean, think about it. Everybody seemed to be expecting from what they could, would think was a biblical point of view. They seemed to be expecting a savior to make them a great nation. But nobody was expecting or hoping for somebody who would actually deal with their personal brokenness and their personal sin. Becoming a great nation in the minds of these people was the answer to everybody's problems. It was the answer for making God's name great even in the world, as opposed to restored hearts and minds, which Jesus came to do, right? And we can relate, because today, do you think that we seek our answers and our wants and our desires anywhere but in the person of Jesus from time to time? I do, often, unfortunately. Do we ever look for a savior who can simply fix our money problems or satisfy our addictions or whatever it is that we think is going to make life better? Or do we really want Jesus? Do we really want the Christ who, in his actuality, like who he actually is, who came to deal with our individual hearts, to change our wants, to change our desires, and restore us to God, even individually? There's just three things that I want us to see today in this passage. One is who Jesus is revealed to be. 
in this transfiguration. Number two is what that says about what he came to do. And number three is why this is essential to the gospel, the saving good news of Christ. And we're going to start with this question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We'll just quickly look at a couple things that happen in this passage. Matthew 17, verse 2. It's just going to get weird right away, right? It says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The same story in Mark 9, 3 says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I'm telling you, I told you, this seems bizarre to me. This all seems bizarre to me. I'm sorry, did, did Jesus just take three guys up a mountain and get to the top and just start glowing and start shining like his face, just like beaming light? That's weird. His, his clothes just start changing color and getting whiter than any other white on earth? That's, we, we don't see things like this, right? What's going on? This Matthew is supposed to be a true story. Like it's never been presented as anything but a true story. And yet Jesus is up here shining and glowing and his light clothes are changing color and stuff. And it's, it's weird. It kind of seems to me like a Disney movie. Like have you ever seen Beauty and the Beast? You know, I've seen Beauty and the Beast. I probably know all the songs still from when I was a kid. But remember at the end, like the beast changes into the prince and like he like levitates and lights like beaming out everywhere and stuff. And like it's really weird. It's really odd, but... I don't think anything of it because it's a Disney movie and it's a cartoon, right? But this isn't a Disney movie. This isn't a cartoon. This is supposed to be real. In the story, Matthew hasn't ever gone down the fiction route. This is supposed to be true, but it's totally out there. I just think we have to acknowledge that this is crazy. Yet, this is a very real part of the story. This really did happen. Yes, it's true. It's not fiction And it's absolutely stunning because these three actually witnessed Jesus being transformed or transfigured and shown in his divine and glorified identity. You know that poster I had of Bo Jackson where he's changing from the baseball player to the football player? It looks like Bo Jackson over here and it looks like Bo Jackson over here. But in the middle, it's really weird because like, you know, it's like overlaid and it's kind of, it's kind of blurry. But it's in that changing area where we see his whole identity, where I see his whole identity. Not one or the other, not football player or baseball player, but both, right? And it's in the changing that you see both, the caterpillar and the butterfly. And so here, what I'm trying to submit, what I'm trying to get us to picture is that this is not, one thing that we really need to see is that this is not Jesus, like taking these guys up the mountain and then pulling off the man mask and being like, ha, you thought I was a man, but I'm actually God. That's not happening. I mean, it kind of seems like it's weird enough for that to be happening, but it's not that. No, this is what's happening. Jesus is revealing his whole identity as both fully God and fully man. And that's super important to be understood at this point in the story, and it's super important for us to understand the gospel. Jesus was set apart by his identity as being fully human and fully God, fully God and fully human, being both. He was what no other would-be Savior or would-be Christ could be because he could do what no other would-be King, Savior, Christ could do. He could pay for sin through his death and bring life through his resurrection because he was both fully God and fully man. 
So understanding his identity as both fully God and fully man is essential in setting the stage for his death, burial, and resurrection, which he has already foretold. He kind of foretells in this passage, and then later on in this chapter, he just very bluntly foretells of his death again. This is crucial and essential in setting the stage for his death, burial, and resurrection and its meaning. These are essential elements of the gospel, of the good news, of the person and work of Jesus. These two things, his humanity and his deity, are essential. He isn't one or the other, he's both. And here on the mountain, the disciples are getting a glimpse of what that looks like. It's really strange, but it's very real. And it could only happen to one person, and that's Jesus. So here, just two quick things. The doctrine of the humanity of Christ is essentially this, just so we kind of get our heads around that that Christ must be fully human if he's to represent fallen humanity, right? In order to represent fallen humanity and pay for our sins, then he had to die an actual human death because the wages of sin is death. So somebody has to pay with death, with human death, with a real human death. So he had to die a human death to represent humanity, not because of his own sin, there wasn't any of his own sin, but because we're all sinful and fallen and full of sin to represent us and to take our place. He had to be one of us. He has to be human for that to actually work. And then number two, the doctrine of his deity. It's basically that the truth is that even if Jesus was perfect and he was killed undeservedly and he died, his death could not save the world if he was only human, right? If he was only human, his death could not save the world. It's because of his deity that his death, to quote Paul Enns, had the infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world. His deity makes the sacrifice valuable enough to cover the sins on our behalf. He has to be human. He has to be God for it to work. He's fully human, fully God. And right after this, God's voice comes in the scene later on in the scene in verse 5 in a cloud as he had done numerous times throughout the Old Testament and he says this he interrupts Peter and says this this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased listen to him which further reveals that Jesus is not just fully human born of a virgin mother but he's also the son of the living God he's fully human and he's fully God and then Paul later on in one of his letters to the Philippians Uh, encourages the Philippians toward godliness by appealing to the fully God, fully human identity of Jesus. And you can just listen to this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, both the form of God and the form of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the question is, who is Jesus? And the answer is, he's the Christ. And to truly be the Christ, he had to be both fully human and fully God, and that's exactly who Jesus is. And he's showing the disciples that he's taken up there with them exactly who he is. He's the Christ, he's fully God, and he's fully man. And because of that, he can do what no other expected savior, no other expected king or Christ would be able to do. He can do far more than making Israel great again on earth. Jesus can forgive sin. 
He can reconcile individuals back to their father, back to God and each other. We can be reconciled to each other and we can be reconciled towards all of creation because of Jesus, making God's name known as great in all of creation. We're going to talk about a second thing. Let's talk about something else that's really strange in this passage and about how it helps us to see uh, more about what Jesus came to do, okay? Matthew 17, 3, just one verse later, we get a little bit more crazy, which is awesome. It says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah show up, so just want to get the picture of these very real events that are happening, but just how crazy it really is, how strange it really is. I mean, Jesus is up here on the mountain physically lighting up, right? And his clothes are changing colors, and he's, they're bleached whiter than any white on earth. And then Moses shows up, who in his own day was kind of familiar with these sorts of encounters with God, if you know the story, but he's also been dead for like 1,500 years, Right? So he probably shouldn't be there. Also, Elijah is there. Not quite as weird because I guess Elijah is still alive because he was taken up in a whirlwind. God just took him up. But also, that was a long time ago, and he's probably not just out here wandering on a mountain because God took him up in a whirlwind. The whole scene is just crazy. And Peter responds to the whole situation kind of oddly, and we don't get to, I'm not going to be able to really get into what Peter said, but I just want to to cut Peter some slack. Like, if you go read stuff on this, like, everybody's like, Peter, you're so dumb, you know? And, and he has a reputation for being, like, a, a loud mouth, and I think he probably was a loud mouth, but come on, man, there's some crazy stuff happening. And whatever he said, if it's foolish, the others are thinking it. I would be thinking it, right? Listen, I can't even deal with, like, being in these awkward situations like being on stage. I still get, like, these wisecracks from the elders about, there was a couple times a few years ago where I got up here, still like not, still very nervous every time, and I had to make a transition between like announcements and prayer, and I thought I was on the phone with my wife or something because I was scared out of my mind, and I'm like, hey, don't forget to take your bulletins, okay? Love you, let's pray. <laughs> and that didn't happen once, that happened twice, and I don't, I mean, I do love everybody, that's great, but that's not what I was, it was a weird time to tell you that, but I d I'm awkward. It's awkward, and when things get awkward, we kind of bumble around. And Peter's seen some crazy stuff. I'm just saying, let's cut the guys some, a break. Moses and Elijah were there. Moses has been dead for 1,500 years. Elijah's not know what he's doing, right? So what are they doing there? I think that we can answer that by asking the question of what Jesus came to do. How did everything from the past point to his coming, and what will it mean for the future? So just get to it. Look. Moses and Elijah just very uniquely represent the law and the prophets. Moses is the man who God used to give the law, and he's considered the model prophet. And Elijah connected prophecy from the times of Samuel with the written prophets, and he's an expected forerunner of Christ. Their presence on the scene is crazy, but it's God. Like, he can do anything, right? And their presence on the scene is pointing to Jesus as his greatness as he's greater than they are, right? And how he's greater than the things that they did. He's greater over the law and the prophets, which they re represent. He's the one who the law and the prophets were pointing to. Jesus is about to fulfill through his death, burial, and resurrection what the, what the work that God did through these men was pointing towards the whole time. Now, Jesus has already said this in Matthew. If you remember back in Sermon on the Mount, it's in chapter 5, verse 17, he says... 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I love Deuteronomy 6.24. It's after the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And down in verse 24, it says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. He commanded us all these things for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. See, the law was and still is good. It instructed people towards living as they were created to live. That's what it did. So it's good. But it was unable to save because sinful man was totally unable to keep it. As the song says, we have hearts prone to wander, right? The prophets were fulfilled in Jesus because as they were, the prophets were always calling people to the heart of God and Jesus is making a way for people to have the heart of God through the, work of per, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. And that word transformed is the same one that's happened with the truth with the, uh, the transfiguration over here in Matthew, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is making a way for people to be changed, which is something that the law and the prophets could never do. They were just pointing to the need for change. They could never actually change us, but Jesus can, and Jesus came to do it. I said earlier that the promised land and the nation of Israel, that the law given and the prophecies and the prophets urging the nation to stay faithful, all those things were always just hints that pointed back towards the garden and forward to a greater restoration, to a complete restoration. It pointed back to when there was right relationship between humanity and God, when there was right relationship between men and women on earth, when there was right relationship between us and all the rest of creation, and it pointed forward to when all that would be restored. The promised land, the nation, the law, the prophets, all those things pointed to what we really needed, and Jesus is here to fulfill that. The presence of Moses and Elijah at this party on the mountain helps to reveal that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to do exactly that, make a way for restoration. He's not delivering a hint or a sign. He's not pointing towards something else. He's who all of that stuff pointed to. He's the one who has come to lead us into life as we were created to live it and glorifying God in all the earth through our life. Jesus came. Why did he come? What did he come to do? He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the last thing, the third thing uh, to look at here is how the necessity of Jesus being fully human and fully God is demonstrated in this passage and why the disciples needed to know this at the time. So let's just take a look at another strange thing that happens here in Matthew 17. We read it earlier, but it's Matthew 17, 5 through 8. And it says this, he, that's Peter, because he was speaking. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. 
And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I hope we get right now that this story is true. And we're, we can move past the bizarreness and the strangeness of it. It's true. It happened. God came in a cloud and he spoke and said, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And over and over again in Scripture, the same thing happens here. Over and over again in Scripture, as God confronts and speaks to people, they fall on their face in terror. We talked about Isaiah doing that a couple months ago. And that's because fallen man can't stand justly before God. To be confronted by God and his holiness is to immediately know our own condition and to immediately know that we are only worthy of death and punishment by his hand. So God confronts you, you know who you are and you know what you deserve and you're terrified because you know he can do it. You fall on your face. But also over and over and over again in scripture, those who fall down in fear are comforted with mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. And so that is here. These men can't stand before God, but Jesus, the God-man, comforts them and stands them up. And it says, and I really like this line, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. In Jesus, who is God, but also man, we can approach God. He's our mediator. But listen, the course that's set for the cross, that he's already set and that he's continuing to set here, the course set for the cross has to be completed. The completion of his death and resurrection is necessary for him to be our justifier and our mediator. Which becomes more clear, to, more clear as we continue to read, I think, because after this scene where God instructs the disciples to listen, the passage continues in verse 9 and says this. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why reveal all of this at the moment then? Like, why take them up the mountain and get all bright and shiny and invite Moses and Elijah and have God come in a cloud? Like, why do that right now if we can't even tell anybody? Well, Jesus reveals himself as the Christ. But to truly understand what it means for him to be the Christ, people have to see his identity through the lens of the cross and his resurrection. Jesus reveals himself as the Christ, but to truly understand what it means for him to be the Christ, we have to see his identity through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. And so for them, on that side of the cross, they have to see the cross and the resurrection through the lens of him being the Christ. Letting these three disciples in on his identity as both fully God and fully man would equip them to follow him to the end. And to be sent after his death and resurrection with these truths about what happened, about who he actually is, that he's actually the Christ, as they go establishing the church, as Christ establishes his church using them. They'll be able to relay why it was necessary for him to give his life to be the Savior and King instead of keeping his life on earth to lead an army and establish an earthly nation. And this is also why they're instructed not to tell anybody yet, right? I mean, honestly, they're just now coming down the mountain. Do you think they got the handle on this yet? They likely don't understand the full meaning of what happened on the mountain, but without a doubt, they know that he is who he says he is, that he's the son of God and the Christ. You know how I know that? Because Jesus just lit up and Elijah and Moses were there and God spoke in a cloud and told them, like, if that happens, you, okay, you're the, son, you're, you're the son of God, you're the Christ. That's, I believe that. But 
The truth is, if that story got out, I think that even people who weren't there would believe it. But they would hear what they want to hear, and they'd understand his identity as the Son of God to mean that he's the Christ that they were expecting, and it was time for military action, it was time for an uprising, it was time to like, take Rome and become an independent nation again. However, if his identity is made known later by the telling of this story more widely after his death and resurrection, then his identity will have to be understood by others through the lens of forgiveness of sins by his suffering on the cross and his resurrection. Does that make sense? Then people, if you look through that lens at who he is, fully God and fully man, and you see what he did, then you can't put anything else on him. People might understand then that by his being fully human, his death could represent humanity, and that by being fully God, his sacrifice was valuable enough to cover the sins of the world, and so he had to die. He had to go to the cross, and that through his resurrection, God has accepted payment and lifted the penalty of death for those who are in Christ, meaning that Christ has given us new life. And so he had to go to the cross, and he had to rise again, and that's why he's fully God and fully man. That's what he was sent to do. And that this is truly salvation. It's the truly the salvation that Israel and the whole world actually needs. Maybe it's not what people expected, but this is what we actually need. So this morning for us, I really just want us to see who Jesus reveals himself to be to these three men and ask ourselves some questions in light of that identity. I hope that we see that this isn't fiction. It's not fiction. It's not just a crazy story, and it actually happened. And it's really significant for us to see it through the lens of his death and resurrection. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And so he's both human and God. I hope we're seeing how he revealed this to the disciples as he continues to set course for the cross and his resurrection. I'm going to keep it simple. I only have one thing that I really want us to consider today. I want you to consider, individually, let's consider, whether you're looking for Christ, for a Christ, who can make our nation great or bless you with money or satisfy whatever your want or your addictions may be or whatever it is you think you need that can fix your circumstances or make this a better and good life. Is that the Christ you want? We often, I think, look for Christ to play a role that we just expect him to fulfill. Or do you want a savior who can deal with the brokenness that leads you to put your hopes and desires and all of those other failing things instead of looking to Jesus only? Jesus can change your heart. Jesus can change your desires and lead you into life because he was raised from the dead. He can lead you into life you are created to live in which you exist to glorify God in all the earth. That's why you are made. There's no other place you'll be more satisfied than living the way he made you to be. And only Jesus can change you. And that's the real salvation you need. What if you died? Would he still be enough? Right? Money's not going to fix it. Status is not going to fix it. Whatever your wants and your dreams and your desires are, it's not going to fix it. Whatever you think we can do with our country, it's not going to fix it. We're not going to be in right relationship with God, in right relationship with others, and actually steward 
and be in right relationship with all of creation. We can't do it. He gave us instructions on how to do it, the law, and nobody could do it. And people were kept calling, them, calling us back to the heart of God, and we wouldn't go back. We're the same. Do you want whatever Christ you've made up in your own mind, or do you want the Christ who really is and for what he can really do, which is save you? Do you know the good news? Do you know what the gospel says? It says that Jesus Christ is God and that he loves the world. And so he became a man so that he could live a perfect life, die a real death on your behalf to pay for your sins, not his. He wasn't sinful. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And having bridged the gap between you and God, Jesus made a way for you to live, to live life like you were created to live, what living actually means. And he made a way for you to be in right relationship with God, in right relationship with your neighbor, not just in this room, but with everybody. We can relate to them how God relate, would relate to them. And with right relationship to all of creation. I just want us to hear this. Jesus loves you. And he wants to deal with your heart and your life. And he's the only one that can. He's the only one that has the goods. He's God and he's human. So he can. He set court. Listen, we've been talking about him setting course for the cross. He set course for the cross way before this account in Matthew. He was there at creation and he set course then. It was always coming to the cross. Jesus loves you and he wants to deal with your heart and your life. Being fully God, he humbly took on the identity of a human as well by being born of the Virgin Mary. He's the son of God. And as the book of Matthew kind of begins and ends, because he did that, God is with us. God's with us and he wants to save us. So we're just going to enter into a time of response and that's just the question I'd like us to be asking. Who do we want? The real Christ who actually came to do something very real in us individually to make us, to restore us corporately? Or do we looking for some other Christ that we've come to expect and made up our minds is what he looks like? Jesus came. He's God with us. And he wants you. He wants to change your life. So the question is, do you know the good news? Will you hear it? And will you follow him? So would you... Uh, uh, time of response we're going to move into there's a just a time where we the band will come up and we'll sing some songs together we'll praise have a time of prayer have a time of worship just to be like just to tell them how much you love them if you need to pray with somebody if you want to accept christ if you don't know him you can do that we'll have some people to pray in the back you can just go and talk with them you can talk with me you can grab somebody you know if you'd like uh, this is a good time to do that if you need to pray for any other reason you're welcome to grab somebody as well. Like I said, there'll be people in the back with name tags on and you can grab them. Also during this time, uh, we come down this middle aisle and there'll people, be people here to serve the bread where we take it and we dip it in the wine of the juice and this is communion. This is where we uh, demonstrate and we, we symbolize that we believe who Jesus is, who he says he is. We're proclaiming through our doing that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the Christ, and he came. He's fully God. He's fully man. He gave his life. He was buried, and he rose again. And because of that, he's made a way for me to be without sin and to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with you, and be right, in right relationship to all of creation. 
And that's what real living is, and it's yours for the taking. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of the church here or not, we invite you to come and take communion and proclaim it together. He's the Lord. He's our Savior. We believe that. And if you're not a Christian and if you're not a believer, then you can't say that, so we'd ask that you not come say it. But we would ask that you'd sit where you are and hear what we're saying and take Christ. Believe. He is who he said he is. This story is true. It's not Beauty and the Beast. It's real. It only happened once, but Jesus is God, and he's man, and he's made a way for you. So we're going to do that. And then also there's a giving basket in the back. That's where we give our tithes and our offerings as an act of worship. So we encourage you to take part in that as well. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move into that. Uh, Our Father, we just thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for everything that led up to him. Thank you for all the good news. I mean, we know that we're not for you first when we're honest. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave you, prone to look to anything else as God, really to look to ourselves as God. But this is not living. This is dying. So thank you for making a way for us to be restored to life, to be restored, to be able to look to you first, to be able to uh, take Jesus who made a way for us by paying for our sins and bringing us into life. Thank you that we can live how we were created to live, namely, most importantly, fulfilling the purpose of glorifying you in our, with our life and all that we do. I pray that we would experience that life that we would take Jesus, that we would follow him, that we would trust that it's for our good always, that you're always leading us into life, that we would trust you and follow you because you are greater than us and you're our creator. I pray that we would take you today. I pray for those who don't know you that they would hear. I pray that you would just open our hearts to know your great love for each and every one of us. And I pray that you use us to take the gospel forth and to be in right relationship with our neighbors and to be in right relationship with those who do not know you and to be in right relationship with all of creation, glorifying you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.